If you would, turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians. Uh, we'll be in chapter 1. And as you go to Colossians, if you're in the black hardbacks, it's uh, page 983. Um, I want to share with you the, some fractions of four different stories. Uh, things that, that I want to put in front of you today to, to maybe declare that God is at work even today. As we look at Colossians chapter 1 in just a moment, we're going to be looking at um, a kingdom built by Christ, but built on a lot of firsts, a lot of big firsts. And then ask the question, how do we as Christians walk with Christ first in our lives? And so the hope is to take four stories, Colossians, and this thought of what it means for him to be first and tie them all together Uh, in an unambitious way in the next 30 minutes. No big deal. First story. I was walking in the hallway at school in a building that I am not in in as often as I am when I'm teaching. Uh, It's after school. I was talking to somebody at their locker, and somebody comes up and was just kind of doing the hovering thing, you know, that one where they want to talk to you, but they're kind of building up the nerve to say whatever they have to say, and And I walk over and we begin a conversation and he starts off by asking me, how do you conquer uh, a a sin that you've dealt with? I said, well, kind of gave him some pointers on that. Uh, You acknowledge that God's grace is enough for you, that God loves you and forgives you and those kinds of things. He said, well, I'm not sure I believe all that yet. I said, okay, we'll work from there. And the conversation then led to, I still can't get past how God could love people. And the two stories he's caught up on are Noah's Ark and Sodom and Gomorrah. Noah's Ark is not a children's story, and he's caught up on the part that's not a children's story. He's caught up on the fact that all but eight die and that God totally destroys them. He's not really fond of that idea. He thinks there's got to be some other way around this. Why does God have to destroy them all? And that leads into the next question, how can God be loving and destroy all of these people? Then the next question uh, kind of revolves around Sodom and Gomorrah and the same problem. Uh, How can a loving God destroy all this wickedness? Now, this isn't a you ask for it kind of question. Uh, This, we're not, Mike finished that last week. Uh, I'm going to touch on it briefly. Uh, As we had that conversation, this student and I kind of walked through that. But the heart of the issue wasn't whether or not God was uh, loving because all these people were destroyed, but whether or not God could love him if he's being wicked, if he is sinning, if he is doing something. And in his mind, he worked up whatever this was. I never heard what it was. He worked up whatever this was to be equivalent to those things and wondering if God was going to destroy him. And that led to some great conversations that eventually got us to the point of understanding the wickedness was so great with the generation of Noah and the generation of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that other going on that there was no other option. It was not that there was no hope for repentance. They were so far gone in their wickedness, they would not repent. And so in order to keep that idolatry and other things continuing to progress into further generations, God chose to wipe it out. Now, you may have problems with that. That's okay. That's not the main part of the sermon anyway, and we can have a conversation about that later. What I wanted to get back to, though, is this thought that he began to kind of process, how do you get God's love out of that? The fact that he stopped the effects of sin from going further, began a conversation about God's love. Now I'm going to pause that story and come to the next one. The next one is a classroom. Uh, 
in the middle of a lesson, all well planned out. Michelle had everything going. I had, I knew where it was going to go. The previous class, we had walked through every step, and I just knew this was going to be exactly how it was going to go. And about ten minutes in, somebody asked the question that took the entire thing to another conversation, and I just saw the teachable moment. And said, "Okay." And so the conversation looked something like this: How do you live life? Um, where you speak the truth against something that may be sinful. We've been talking about the kings of Israel, and uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament kings of Israel, none of them are a good king. Good meaning all of them practice idolatry, all of them kind of raise their tall finger to God and live a life that leads other people to do the same thing. Uh, And then you've got this guy named Ahab. Maybe you've heard him, maybe you've heard of his wife Jezebel. Uh, These two are the most wicked out of all of them. And God, in his love and in his mercy, sends Elijah, the boldest of the prophets, to this crazy king and queen combo uh, to confront them. Almost as if to give them an opportunity to turn away from the wickedness that they were following. But the only way that they could have been reached was not somebody who was nice or comforting, but somebody who would just get in your face and eat your nose off, kind of like Elijah. And God sends them... Elijah to confront. And so the conversation then went to, well, we can't really do that today because people will want to do to us what they did to Elijah, which is eventually try to kill him. I said, you're right. So how do we, how do we take a, a, another step in this? The next step was name a sin, and they picked one that didn't affect any of them. Uh, they're all high school students, and one of them picked adultery. Um, not one of them is going to be dealing with that. And so they thought, oh, it's safe said, okay, let's say you embrace that as a total lifestyle. You think everything's good with that and you don't have a problem with it. And I come alongside you and I begin to just live life. And we have conversations and we talk about things that aren't all that important. And we walk through some bigger ideas. We walk through some other things. And eventually it comes up that you notice that I'm always talking well of my wife. I'm always speaking well of my children. I don't have bad things to say about them. And I choose to, to only tell you things that are of value, and I don't ever do this, this, and this. And it's not because I have this holier-than-thou attitude. It's just I, I love my wife, I love my children, and, and my speech reflects that. And a conversation starts. And the other person says, well, I'm an adulteress, or I'm an adulterer. Okay. Wait, you're not condemning me? Well, I'm not okay with what you're doing, but we've been living life long enough together that... Um, I'm accepting you just as you are. There was a conversation that needed to happen, but I couldn't have it now because you weren't ready. But now that you are ready, let's talk about it a little bit. How do you think that goes? And the conversation continued. And they began to see that even in the midst of that, God can be loving, but if we're going to do that, we've got to be willing to get messy in life. That doesn't mean that we engage in their sin or, or get their sin all over us, but we decide that our hands are worth getting dirty in the situation. And we hurt with them through the stuff that they're hurting in. In such a way that at the other side of it, they see Christ in us and the conversation just naturally comes as part of living life together. That made for a very interesting uh, application at the end of class. The third one was between classes. Uh, I had a student this week who uh, her, her father's birthday was Friday, which was really good except that the anniversary of her father's death was the same week on Monday. 
she was grieving, she was hurting, and she was missing her daddy, which I totally understood. And she had come from chapel the day before where there were a panel of um, five teachers who had walked through how Christ had brought them through difficult things, had shared with those who were there the, the heartaches that brought pain but also brought a realization of who Christ is in the midst of what they were facing. And so she has that ringing in her ears, and we have this long, drawn-out conversation. And it's a conversation I've been wanting to have since I met her coming in as an eighth grader, because I met her dad. And her dad was, um, was very different than most of the parents at our school, um, in a good way, in some ways, and a not-so-good way in others. Um, and I hesitate to tell you how far this is, one, because I know we're recording, uh, but two, because... Uh, the conversation is not finished yet. And this particular student is one I've been wanting to talk to since her freshman year. And as she came in, we've had conversations over the last six months because she's been in my class. She really enjoys my class. Um, and that's not on me. That's because the content we're talking about is something she really resonates with. She really loves it. Uh, I will tell you this much. Her dad was Jewish. And so she's struggling with all these other things, trying to figure out how to hear all this Christian school stuff when she's not quite there yet. I remember talking with her dad when they came for a preview day, and the conversation looked like this. Bible teacher slash department head. Um, yeah, we are very unapologetically Christian. We will share our faith over and over and over. And her dad simply said, well, that's great. I'll just have to tell her the rest of it when she gets home. And that just stuck with me. You're a dad who gets it. You're loving your kid and you're going to teach her in the way that she should go. And he's living out this Deuteronomy 6 kind of thinking. And so she's struggling for obvious reasons because she's hearing all this stuff knowing that she needs something to help her walk through it and also struggling with all the other parts of the puzzle. This turned into a 45-minute conversation that wouldn't have happened at the start of school. It wasn't time. And the fourth conversation was one that happened in an office of a colleague, someone I'd been praying for for some time. I didn't really know what was going to do, what was going to happen with that, and I felt very compelled uh, early in the semester to go and set up an appointment with this colleague and say, "Hey, um, let's get together once a week and just talk and just pray." Okay, so we did, and that lasted for a few weeks toward the end of the semester, and then kind of dropped off. Uh, and then I got a call as we were kind of coming back from break. Uh, one of our three-day weekends, he said, I'd like you to come in and, and do a Bible study with me and a couple of others that work with me. I said, okay. What he didn't know was I'd been praying for that to happen since August. And then he said, you know, once we finish this, because he's trying to, he wants to get some, what we have to do, continuing education units. We have to have certain credits to say we're growing in different areas. So once we finish that, can we keep going? As if to say, this is not only beneficial for that result, but this is going to have some other results. And so all four of those conversations are ones I put before you, first, not at all to brag on me. This is nothing to do with me. Because every single one of these conversations could have happened in August. And every single one of these conversations in August would have failed. So I put that in front of you. Those are the beginnings of those stories. Now I want to step back and I want to look at Colossians and see how we can prepare ourselves for all four of those conversations. They may not look like that in your workplace or in your home or, 
or with your friends. Or, but there are four different basic categories, but all of them require some intentionality on our part. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You notice as we start talking about these, we see a lot of firsts, several firsts. In fact, as we look at verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's pause for a second because there are those who would look at that and go, see, Jesus was created. Jesus was born. There are many in our world who teach these kinds of things. You have my permission to throw up on their shoes because that's heresy. Uh, what it is essentially saying, some of you are like, that's gross. Um, <laughs> what's essentially saying is he was there as creation began. He was there. He was present. He, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were present at creation as it began. And as it began moving, he began upholding it. He was not born and created, as some would say. He is and always has been fully God. And so as creation begins, he's there. And it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. If we take 15 and 16 together, we see this image of the invisible God. Micah said this many times, and I want to reiterate it. If we want to know what God the Father looks like, let's look at what Jesus is. He is that physical representation for us. He gives us what God would look like with skin on. The things that he does, the, the enemy love, the things that he says, the way he heals, the way he casts out demons, the way that he goes way beyond what anybody even begins to understand, he lives that out. He is the image. He is the, the picture, the best picture of what God the Father looks like. But we don't want to keep it in, in a distant, far-off realm. We want to bring it closer. And so we take a little bit further, and it says, Whether there are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We can look at rulers and authorities and all those who are in power now, who are in power because God is aware of it and has allowed them to be there. Regardless of your feelings of our current presidential status or our upcoming presidential status, God was not surprised when our president was, in the, was placed in the Oval Office. He didn't look around and go, America, that one? Really? Or he didn't go, oh, America, you got it. He didn't do that. It wasn't, it wasn't something he looked around and went, huh, didn't see that coming. We're in January, almost February. We're looking ahead to another presidential election. And God's not wondering who that candidate's going to be. He's not going to be surprised when the votes are cast in November and we look around and we go, oh, there's our president. Some of you will agree with that decision. Some of you won't. And he's not going, oh, 
man, I wish I'd seen that coming. I could have prepared. No, he already knows. He's the one who is involved in placing rulers and authorities in their places. Now, that doesn't mean he's responsible for all their decisions. They're responsible for their own decisions, but he knows what's going to happen as all that kind of plays out. And as we look at that, we see that the first king, Christ, Jesus, is well aware of what's going on, and all the authorities that come in after that, in some form or fashion, have to answer to him. Now, they may not know they are, but the truth of the matter is that's exactly where we are. Now, moves up a little bit. This is still distant, kind of removed from us. We get into verse 17, and it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So we see two more first. We see that he's the one who starts the church, the body of believers who will represent God the Father and Christ the Son in this world that we live in. He's our, he's our head. He's our boss. He's the one who gives, gives the marching orders, and he's the one that, that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, he's the one who's been kind of running the show. Not kind of, been running the show. But he's also given us this hope. He's given us this resurrection, this firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he's the first one to die and come back on his own, to give us this picture of what our hope is. Our hope is a physical resurrection where we will be able to to remember all that we've seen, we'll be able to live a life that is full and complete, and in that resurrection, we will be like him. I don't know if that stirs you at all. I don't know if that grips you at all, but there's this thought in my mind that ultimately we are living for a hope that's already been established. We are living for a hope that's already present. It's not something we look back and we go, oh, that, that's cool. It's already there. We have a hope that we're moving toward. And so if he's the first in that, and he's the first in all these other things, there's another first that he offers us. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the first to work out reconciliation. Reconciliation is this great word that means to bring that which was enmity or against each other back together it's this thought that god is the one who starts the reconciliation he comes to us the god of the universe the creator of all worlds the thing that we can't do for ourselves he does for us and that he draws us to himself he he gives us the reconciliation in the cross wow the god of the universe is willing to stretch out his hand to us And we just spent time right before the sermon singing about his great name. How can we not capture that thought and look around and go, wait a minute. He wants me to come to him. Now he's got terms, but he doesn't have to stretch out his hand at all. The fact that he does is amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Then everything he might be, verse 19, preeminent. What does it look like for Christ to be first? In his creation, we see that. He is there. In rulers and authorities, he's the first and greatest king. We can kind of see that. The church, he is the beginning and he is the sustainer. In the resurrection, he's the first to be resurrected. But our resurrection will be like his. In reconciliation, he's the first to reach out his hand. So what do we do with that? Look down a little bit further. 
verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, keep your fingers there. Turn over to Romans chapter 5, which is 942 in the black hardbacks. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. I want to show you the depth of this reconciliation. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Keep your fingers in Colossians. We'll come back to it. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we will, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Capture this picture. It's not while we had everything together. It's not while we were able to do all these good things for God. It's not while we were charitable or giving or loving or any of these things. It's while we were enemies shaking our fists at God, either metaphorically or literally, that he comes to us. And he reconciles us to himself. It's like the, the mother who grabs the child who's fighting against him and just wraps him for a hug to keep the fight from continuing. This idea of drawing us to himself while we were still enemies blows my mind. Shouldn't I have something to do with this? Shouldn't I be able to earn my way in? Shouldn't I deserve some of this? Isn't there something I could have done first? No. The beauty of it is that... We might choose to die for a good person or a righteous person. If Mike were in danger, would I be willing to, to do something to get him out of danger? To take a bullet for him? Yes. My children and my wife. That's not even a second thought. We all think that way, though. For the most part, if you have children, there's a question in your mind. If something's going to happen to your children, that you would do anything beyond moving heaven and earth to protect them or to stand in the way for something for them to be okay. Doesn't, doesn't even phase us to think that way. But that's how it's supposed to be. What Christ does is he says, well, that's how you work and that's good. Here's how I work. And he takes it so much further. And while we would say, no, and we would shout and we would curse him and we would, I won't demonstrate that part. As we would do those things, he still comes to us and says, I want you. Let that sink in. That blows me away. I don't get that kind of love. It doesn't make sense to me. I should be able to do something to earn it, but I don't have to. Now, once I have it, that's where the next step comes in. Flip back over to Colossians chapter 1. 983 is in the hardbacks. It says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Well, we just saw that in Romans 5. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, look at this, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If you're reading in the NIV, above reproach may say, without accusation. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel holy and blameless and above reproach. There are a lot of times when I'm wrestling to make it uh, holy, never mind blameless and above reproach. 
that even in the midst of that, God is at work in this process called sanctification to make us holy and blameless and without reproach. That means when you fall, God will pick you back up. And he'll set you on your course again. And he'll help you walk through it. And when you fall again, he'll do it again. And he'll keep bringing you to that point where you'll finally be holy and blameless and without reproach. But to what end? To what end am I holy and blameless and without reproach? To what end are you holy and blameless without reproach? Just for you? Just for me? No. God has created us to be around other people. And so now we can kind of live this out. We can walk in such a way, not that we're perfect, but that we can look around and say, God, you have reconciled me and I don't deserve it. But I know people around me who need that kind of love. Help me to love them. Help me to show them. Help me to walk in a way that pleases you. And so he goes on and he says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, this idea begins to affect us. And it all revolves around this one nugget of an idea that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is first. That in every aspect, every relationship, every friendship, every family member, every grieving moment, every joyful moment, Christ is first. This is, and again, this isn't coming from somebody who's standing on an ivory tower waving a self-righteous finger, saying, I've got this and you don't. No, no, no. This is all of us walking in life together saying, you know, you've reconciled me. You are first. And when you're not first, my world suffers. When you're not first, the, the, the lives of those around me suffer. So how do we make him preeminent? How do we make him first? Let's go back to those conversations, those stories. The first one was an unexpected story. It wasn't, that conversation wasn't on my radar. But it was a conversation that started with, God helped me to be faithful today. And I've had this student in my class for the last several months. And I could have had the conversation that we had on Tuesday or Wednesday um, early in the school year. And I would have damaged the relationship because it was a time. But I know that God wants to reconcile the student to himself. And so this unexpected conversation simply came from me living life and seeing him there in a conversation that came from that. We've heard Ryan preach this, preaching as you go. This idea of living life for the Father as you go, as you live life, as you do the things that you always do. What about the second story? The classroom. We really boil it down to how are we willing to live life? Are we willing to get our hands dirty? Are we willing to walk in such a way that we look around and we go, this person uh, may not be on my top 10 friend list may not be in my favorites on my phone, but they desperately need hope. Part of that conversation in my class, that particular class period, there was one student that I've had a struggle with throughout the school year. I'm not going to name names because some of you know this person. Uh, but it's the idea that the conversation that went from that was just living out faith. And the conversation that I was ready for because... 
I looked into these things in the scripture and, and knew what it had to look like. The third conversation in grief. That's the hardest one to do. Sometimes. The reason I say hardest is because when we know people who are grieving, we want to have all the right answers. We want to have all the right things to say. And it's been my experience, limited, but so far playing out, that grieving people don't need all the answers at first. I haven't preached a funeral yet where I gave them all the why answers. Nor will I. But that doesn't mean I don't build the relationship to walk alongside. And when grief comes, that we're able to talk about that as well as living life. See, one thing I was able to give to the student was comfort because I had been comforted and I stored that comfort away, not as a something to hold on to, but oh, I remember when I walked through this time and this hurt me and I know not how you're hurting, but I know how Christ can help your hurt. But see, that third conversation started not this year, but her freshman year. I so hope that she would come into my class. I so hope that we would have those conversations. The end of that conversation on Friday looked like this. I can't believe everything that's in that book. Join the club. I struggle with stuff that's in that book. I've struggled with stuff that's in my book since I was 15 years old. And as I've struggled, I've come to see it's okay. The struggles were eventually answered. Wait, there are contradictions in the Bible. Yep. You know this? Yep. You okay with it? Uh, I know what I'm looking for. And that contradiction doesn't scare me because I know that that doesn't really contradict itself. How do you know that? Well, we'll talk about that sometime. But all of these conversations began not that day. And here's where I want to say, if Christ is first, there are going to be unexpected conversations, but there are going to be a lot of conversations that require prayer in advance. A lot of prayer in advance. I have a 16-year-old in my house now. Exciting times. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I mean, we, we went to town center yesterday and had a video scavenger hunt for a couple of hours. It was a lot of fun. Um, I watched her hang out with her friends, and I, I know uh, at the end of it all, we got had some of her friends at the house and family and all that. After everybody left, Beth and I are with Melody in our room, and we're just talking. And there have been some rough patches the last couple of years. There have been some choices that she made that weren't great. There were some cho choices I made in responding to that that weren't great. But that conversation looked like this. I see the young woman that you're growing to become. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the friends you're making. I'm proud of these things. And to be able to speak a blessing into her life was, was there. We don't have lots of fights. We have a few. We're normal somewhat. Well, they are. I'm still working on normal. Um, but in the midst of that, I was able to speak into her life. But it wasn't something that was just a momentary conversation. It's been ongoing. And when it was time to say that, it meant something. The effort that it took to plan a video scavenger hunt said, you're worth my time, you're worth my planning, you're worth my thinking. If we think about relationships in the same way, we don't try to draw the net on the first cast. 
We let those relationships build over time. We let those conversations build over time. We let the trust build over time. And then when it comes to a heartache or even a celebration or when we, it's very obvious that God is wanting to invade their lives and, and talk about things that go a little bit deeper than how's the, the Super Bowl going to end out. Enjoyable conversation, but ultimately, the wrong team's not there. Um, anyway, um, when we figure that out, then relationships become something where Christ is first, and it's just about building time and trust. I could have never had the conversation I had with that student on Friday in August. I hadn't earned that yet. But since Christ, I'm trying to make Christ preeminent in everything I'm doing, I saw that if I picked that fruit too early, I would have destroyed the crop. I also saw that if I picked that fruit wrongly, I would have bruised the fruit. And that's where we begin looking at these conversations and going, I have to make Christ first. I'm a go-getter when it comes to that kind of stuff. And so many times I have failed because I didn't wait for God's prompting. So many times I have totally messed up a relationship because I didn't wait he wasn't first. It was all about something else I was thinking about. How do we make Christ first? The last conversation was one that took months before it formed. And I don't know how it's going to play out, to be honest. This coworker and I don't have a lot in common. Some, but not a lot. But I want to make Christ first. I want him to be preeminent. How do we do that? What are some practical things we can do? Today, we begin putting the relationships that are most important to us as matters of prayer. Our children, our coworkers, our families, our friends, our enemies. And we make it a matter of prayer and we say, God, when you're ready, if you want to speak through me, I want to be your vessel. How do we make him preeminent when it comes to our faith, we begin putting things that aren't Him in other places than first. And again, this isn't me wagging the finger. This is something I'm still trying to figure out. These four conversations came about because God wanted to show me something. And again, it has nothing to do with me. And this is what I want to share with you before I finish. God is still at work. God is still at work in the lives of his people. We're about to hear next week about the state of FC3 and where we're headed for our 40th year. And we've got a lot of things where we're going to look up and go, is God blessing? Well, I want to tell you, yes, he is. God is at work. God is moving in the lives of his people and we can be a part of that movement. We can see where he's working and join him there. We can... We can let ourselves be second place and see if we can put Christ first and as we follow him, see him do amazing and incredible things. All four of those conversations sat me down quietly and went, wow. And not one of them was something that uh, God was surprised by, but every single one of them was one where I look back and I went, you're moving. And I, I sound shocked. But it's what I've been praying for. God, move. And he is. How many times do we pray that and go, oh, you're actually doing that. 
Why? Make him first. Make him first. And be encouraged. God is moving among his people. And these are four stories of my week. Do you have a story of God at work? Are you sharing that in your faith communities? Are you sharing that with your families and your friends? Are you having those conversations where Christ is first? And if not, my question is simply, why not? Make him first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.